This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Check out their newly revamped OnRap program, which gives writers month-long access to educational webinars, interactive pitch prep sessions, and online pitching opportunities. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're doing another Paper Scraps slash Paper Tease episode as we will be giving feedback on four of your own entries in our September Paper Tease edition, as well as picking this month's two winners. Exciting to find out. Just a reminder for those who aren't familiar, our Paper Tease competition is a free submission that you can send in to us uh, for your TV pilot teaser, and then we will pick the ones that we want to read out on air and critique, and then we'll end up picking some winners from that who will win some cool prizes from our sponsors and eventually go in the draw for our Paper Team mentorship. And that's any teaser of any genre, any format, up to eight pages, and you can send those at paperteam.co slash teaser. Make sure they are your actual cold opens or teasers, not just the first eight pages of like a feature script or even, you know, of your pilot or whatever. If they're the closer they are to being an actual teaser, the more likely we're going to be using them. And let's get started with our first one for the month of uh, September. It's called Student Visa by Paul Chang, and it's a comedy. And in Student Visa, we see a number of international students getting on planes to study in America from Pakistan, the UK, to Mexico, to Canada, to Singapore. They say tearful goodbyes to friends and family. Our lead, Stanley Chua, steps off the plane wide-eyed and amazed by America, only to find that the school he is meant to study at, the Richard Harverford School of Business, aka the Ivy of Iowa, <laughs> is actually a run-down old computer storefront, and that they tricked him by using a picture of Princeton on the brochure. He goes inside and meets the shady deans, one of whom is seemingly dead from a cocaine overdose, but she injects herself with adrenaline and welcomes him to business school and America. What did you think of Student Visa? I really liked this script. I thought it was super funny, really good use of visual comedy. And, you know, it played with the audience's expectations about you know what was happening and what's actually being met as well as the character's expectations. So yeah, just overall, really enjoyed this one. I absolutely echo all your sentiments. I thought it was uh, extremely well and professionally written. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of surprising situations and this twisting of expectations scene after scene. Uh, one example of that is the lead character gets an Uber, and as he realizes that the, the photo on the brochure is actually Princeton because the Uber driver went to Princeton himself. So uh, yeah. there's a little bit of that twisting of the expectation as well as milking of the humor. And that's what we've been talking about in past uh, Paper Tease episodes, this idea of living in the situation and sort of like milking the humor and the emotion and the story out of every single scene. Right, like taking advantage of the tools you have at your disposal rather than blowing through them too fast kind of thing. And I just thought it was a cool concept as well. It feels unique. I don't think I've seen this before. This kind of like international students showing up and, you know, finding out that it's this rundown sham kind of school. Just in general, good dialogue characters. I like the character intros. I felt like I did get a good sense of them through, you know, things like their clothing and their hairstyles and their actions, even though most of these characters who are introduced in the various countries didn't even have any lines in that point. I felt like I knew who they were. You know, one of the ones I liked was Oscar Perez 30 tailored everything. Like those are two words, but it tells you a lot about him. Oh, absolutely. And maybe it's the international in us that uh, 
uh, lean into that. But uh, I definitely agree in, in terms of the character descriptions. This is one of the teasers on this uh, competition that I've read with probably one of the better character descriptions throughout. And it wasn't just about their physical appearance, but also their state of mind. And even looking at the tail end of the teaser, when the writer describes Rose, the dean, as almost looking disappointed like she's alive. I thought that was a nice, <laughs> cute way of describing a character that isn't just about uh, you know the way she looks, but actually her state of mind and the contrast she has to the other characters. Another element of the script that I really enjoyed was that the writer was highlighting the important elements of the scene. Uh, generally speaking, he wasn't really bogged down in a needless uh, description of details until it really mattered, which I think sometimes a lot of people think they need to describe you know the wallpaper of a room instead of what is happening actively in the action of the scene so i appreciated that yeah and i felt like it had a good point of view as well even though we're introduced to maybe five different characters it was very clearly stanley's story that we were seeing through his eyes and i also got a good sense of the writer's voice through the writing yeah it's definitely not a one-to-one comparison to a show like community which i was a little bit worried about initially uh thinking about oh okay here goes another uh, protagonist uh, going into a school that um he wasn't really expecting to get into but it actually subverted those expectations which i appreciated yeah none of those little twists were super obvious or uh, overly signaled which i appreciated too was there anything you felt could be improved in this teaser yeah, so I had a couple of sort of very micro elements that I wanted to highlight. One is this idea of space and slug lines. I thought you could add some more delineation in terms of the space. So for example, when he meets the dean physically, I thought the, the room environment was a bit confusing in terms of location. And when they go to meet the dean in her office, the slug line could be simplified. So as it stands, it says interior outside Dean Whalen's office. I thought you could maybe simplify that by just saying Haverford School dash outside Dean Whalen's office or even Haverford School dash an office or office, uh, especially since in the prose right after, it's already repeated initially, right? So it says currently st- uh, they stand outside an office whose sign reads Dean Whalen. So it's sort of like a repetitive beat based on the slug line. These are very minute micro details, but I think there's a way to smooth that out to give a clear sense of space. I mean, for me, there weren't any huge glaring issues jumping out. And that's good because, you know, that's it shows that you're immersed in the read when you're not really noticing some of the, the smaller stuff that maybe could be tweaked. But, you know, you're invested in what's going on. And so unless there's something, some big issue that jumps out, a lot of time you don't notice when the, the writer is doing a good job. Absolutely. And just a heads up on page four, Greg's name is missing from the, the dialogue. So that's a little super <laughs> micro. <laughs> so what makes us want to read on uh, or not? I think that this pilot teaser does a really great job of setting up the world and the characters, and also that inherent sense of conflict and understanding that this conflict and comedy is going to be ongoing and and making us wonder what's going to happen next. You've introduced all of the right elements such that I'm sitting here going, oh, I can see how this is going to be funny when these two people interact and in this situation and when they all, the rest of the characters all show up to this school and all that kind of thing. So any sort of sense of that where you're excited just by the basic elements you've introduced to the story is a good sign. Yeah, definitely agree with all those thoughts. I felt like the script encapsulated this idea of situational comedy. It's these characters living in those little moments and the comedy that ensues based on their interactions or the environment. So I really appreciate it even on a story level. Like you said, it's not something I've seen before. And every little turn in every little scene really drew me in further. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate student visa. Yeah, I would read the rest of the script right now if I had it in front of me. 
Moving on to our second script for the month of September, or a second teaser, I should say. Yeah, so this one is called The English Department by Jeffrey Warndorf and Jordan Goodwin, and it's a drama. So the summary is we find two people, a young man and a woman, carrying a wheelbarrow through a garden. They discuss how the man has changed his major from business to English. We don't see their faces. Uh, instead, we just hear their conversation while entirely focused on the seemingly heavy wheelbarrow that they're carrying. They reach the cellar doors and go down into a basement where workers are chopping up human bodies like butchers. We finally see who the two people are pushing the wheelbarrow, a 19-year-old named Scott and an Italian lady named Mona. Mona addresses the workers in her native language, telling them to remove any trackers in the bodies they're dismembering. Once outside, Mono commends Scott for his composure in that situation. Uh, what were your thoughts on this, Alex? Well, conceptually, I actually really like the idea of following these two characters, having this mundane conversation while carrying a wheelbarrow full of bodies mm -hmm. about to be dismembered. However, as it stands, I thought it was a little bit too confusing in the way you hide the ball regarding who these people are and as well what they're doing. It's sort of like hiding the ball in a way that isn't conducive to a mystery as much as confusion. Right. I, I felt the exact same thing. You know, it's great hiding the fact that there's dead bodies and that they're wheelbarrowing that, but there's really no reason to hide their identity. We didn't get any payoff for that. It's just, uh, in fact, it probably made it more confusing when we only found out their names later into the script. And uh, I did notice some inconsistencies between how even the woman was named. It goes between Mona and Viola and even woman after she's been introduced as Mona slash viola so it really threw me for a loop in terms of understanding who's here and what's happening yeah i had the same notes myself uh, in terms of the the names and the character dialogue uh, i would say even before that the way they're introduced finally in the script uh, made it seem like a bigger deal than it was so uh, the script reads the woman and young man come in and we see them in full view they are mona viola and scott fields Am I supposed to already know who Mona and Scotty are? Like the way it was written made it seem like, oh, these are names I should be recognizing instead of, oh, these are just the names of these people that we've seen so far. Yeah, I had some issues with the character descriptions themselves anyway, especially Scott. You know, his description was Scott is 19, average height and build, okay looking, but with not much style. So my issue with that is it tells me exactly nothing about him especially when it's been built up to this big moment of revealing his identity and he's just like a regular dude. So, you know, if he's meant to be an average Joe, you could make more of a point of pointing that out. Like he's aggressively average or so plain you've already forgotten his face. But right now it just feels like the description was kind of like wasted words. And, you know, if you want to make him interesting, even boring plain people can have some little quirk that might make them memorable to the reader. It could be how he looks or how he talks or a tick and how he acts. I'm glad we're on a paper team podcast because I had the exact same thoughts about <laughs> the exact same beat. Like you said, bland descriptions that sort of say nothing about who he is as a person is a problem when you consider that I'm assuming he is our protagonist. So really, why is he so bland? On the flip side, maybe you don't need a cork. I would say actually maybe the fact that he is so bland and average is atypical in this environment. In which case, that should be emphasized even more. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's the only American in a room full of Italians, for example. Whatever the case may be, just describing someone as average doesn't make that person stand out. It just makes the writing itself average. 
Yeah, and I, I did notice this kind of pattern with some of the earlier description too, like with the garden. There's a lot of telling us what things aren't rather than telling us what they are. And, you know, I think that you want to do that kind of Hemingway thing, you know, do things proactively and positively and simply rather than kind of, you know, leading us around in circles to, because I was confused with the garden. It was like the landscaping is more elaborate than a Japanese style garden, but it's just as meticulously cared for and gives off the same sanctuary like atmosphere. So is it a Japanese garden just more elaborate or is it a different kind of garden? In, but that is just as manicured as a Japanese style garden. Right. And, and just going back to the story of it all, I think the, the tension is there initially, but you're milking it too long. So currently it's three pages before we get to see that they're carrying bodies and we're not focused on their faces. We're focused on the wheelbarrow. And I just thought you could rearrange the pieces that you already have around and emphasize, for example, their facial features once we get to see them into full view initially, uh, as opposed to later on. I just think that as it sends, it's sort of like you want to have your cake and eat it too, where you're obfuscating both uh, what they're doing and who they are. Now, not that you would want to go full Quentin Tarantino on this, but the reason why his style works is because you're juxtaposing the horrible, ridiculously brutal and violent situation with some mundane conversation about McDonald's and burgers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had the same note on that too. I get that the dialogue is meant to be banal to juxtapose this gruesome, surprising thing they're doing. But to me, the discussion about English and business and college and whatever was too disconnected from any sort of thing. You know, we need to call it back at the end somehow. Like I could see her saying to him, you seem to handle carnage well. Maybe business was the right career for you. Or, you know, like it just needs to like work in some way with the scene, even though it's meant to be unrelated. In terms of the story itself, you need to make a choice between hiding the ball about who they are, but not what they do, as opposed to hide the ball about what they do, but not who they are. And to convey the current feeling that is sort of present in the teaser, in my mind, my pick would be to be upfront about who these people are, but still maintain the focus on the wheelbarrow, for example. You can still portray the same sense of dread uh, focusing on the wheelbarrow and the two characters having that Monday conversation while at the same time describing who they are to us and exposing who they are as people. But as it stands, we're not really invested in either elements. Yeah, I agree. I think that honestly, if you introduced Scott as a very mundane, average looking dude talking about his school life up the front, it leads us further away from putting it together that there's like dead bodies here. You know, it's going to make us suspect that less. And I do like that build to the reveal of all these people cutting up body parts and stuff. I think it's good and it's, it's effective. But there is a point that I felt it was kind of given away too early when they open up the, the door to the basement or whatever. And there's this line, the visceral sounds of cleavers chopping through flesh fill the room. Now, you've gone to all this trouble to hide people's faces, what they're picking up and moving. And then we're giving away the reveal that these are bodies in a sound that we probably couldn't even really distinguish. You know, I don't know the difference between the sound of a cleaver chopping through flesh and chopping through potatoes. I don't well, think it's maybe that you don't, but uh, <laughs> some people do. But I think that's not the thing you want to hang your reveal on because then the next couple of lines have nothing to do with that. And then it gets to the actual visual of these bodies being chopped up, which is great. And I love that visual. And I want that to be the reveal for the reader. Even if you just change that line to cutting up meat, we might assume it's animal more than saying the specific word flesh. Right. It sort of muddles the message overall. And I had the, the same micro notes about other elements of the prose that I thought slowed down to read. And sort of were there to show off vocabulary above conveying this evocative image or emotion. 
So for example, on page three, Mona is described as petite, but with wiry strength and then indefatigable will in her eyes. Indefatigable. Indefatigable. My point here is I guarantee that if I, as a writer, bumped on this word as a concept, and you did too, Nick, in some capacity, then some busy executive or assistant covering a desk will roll their eyes at this $25 word with tax included instead of something that's more simple and more evocative. I'm not saying you need to dumb it down for the reader. I'm just saying there's ways of conveying that imagery and that visual without relying on some complicated synonym. Right. It's the kind of thing where a reader is going to be tripped up by the word rather than just absorbing the meaning of it. You could just say that there's a strength in her eyes or something like that, you know, and you know, I can see the argument for the use of certain vocabulary in Mona's dialogue because she is an English teacher and, and she does speak in a very distinct way to the other character and in a much more elaborate kind of way. And so in that case, it's fine. But in the description, I think it, it trips up more than anything. Right. My point was specifically in the prose, not in the dialogue. Obviously, people speak the way they speak. I'm specifically pointing out the bumps I had in terms of the prose itself, which is meant to ingratiate the reader into uh, reading more. Now, there were a couple of other micro bumps I had uh, on page one. There's this classic a beat that appears in the prose. And by and large, having a line saying beat or a beat in the prose can almost always be replaced by a more relevant description in the prose, like an awkward silence or the young man jerks or groans, whatever kind of reaction you want out of those people. It's better to highlight that over some abstract beat that doesn't really make sense. Mm, I think that's a personal choice. I like writing a beat in my stuff. I, I can see the argument for that. If there's something better to say in that moment, then absolutely say it. But I'm totally fine with the use of a beat in the, in the prose, not, yeah. uh, not in parenthetical. No, I'm fine with it in the prose. All right. I guess it depends on the person. Mm -hmm. So what makes us want to read on in the script versus not? Well, like I mentioned, I like the story and the sense of dread and the dynamic overall. However, I feel like if you sort of flip elements around that already exist actually in the teaser as it stands. But if you just rearrange those things so that you don't really hide the ball about either who they are or what they do and lean into the fact that, oh, this is a creepy environment, I would want to read on because I'm kind of weirded out by this environment. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely there. I think that I'm curious what this is all about. You know, their bodies in these kind of covert black clothing, they have trackers in them, there's some sort of weird like espionage or government military thing going on here. And I'm curious what that is and how this guy got involved in it. But like Alex was saying, if, if we just build to that reveal a little bit more and don't do the hat on the hat mystery, I think it'd be a lot stronger to pull a reader into the next rest of the pages. All right, moving on to our third script of the month called Botany Bay by Alexander M.J. Smith, another comedy. And in Botany Bay, we meet Flynn, an Irish convict in the Botany Bay penal colony in 18th century Australia, or New Holland as it was called then. As he wakes up on his 237th day of imprisonment, we see that even if he wanted to escape, there's 10,000 miles of shark-infested water between him and home. We meet his friends, the gentle giant Nobby, and the kleptomaniac Ella, who tells Flynn that the captain's daughter is about to move out of home and in with her. What did you think of Botany Bay? Yeah, I mean, this one's close to home, quite literally, <laughs> being set in Australian history. So I thought it was fun to see something in this kind of setting. And I haven't seen a comedy really set back in colonial 
Australia with all the convicts. So that's a cool idea. I liked the fun juxtaposition at the start with the voiceover and the visuals about, you know, whether he could escape or not. And then even some of the meta elements were cool, like the use of the titles, you know, saying New Holland and it's crossed out with a red pen and says Old Australia. So I liked all of that stuff about it. But there were a few uh, little issues, which I'll address in a moment. Yeah, I can't really say I've read many uh, comedy scripts set in uh, Australia in the 1700s. But that said, I enjoyed overall the premise and the humor. My one big sort of element that I wanted to point out is, and perhaps this is my lack of uh, Australian knowledge, but I was a bit confused by what was going on in the story. I think there are multiple hurdles that you need to get over throughout this uh, teaser to really understand the concept of the show. So firstly, it's a period piece. Then they also speak like it's 2018, even though it's the 18th century. Then the opening itself is actually a dream. It's not reality. It's this weird abstract way of conveying that he's trapped on this island, not a physical jail. And then the other element, as I just mentioned, is the fact that prisoners can roam free around Australia because the jail is Australia itself, not a physical cell. Now, I understand intellectually that Australia is a prison, but we are as people so accustomed to have prisoners in physical cells that it's very jarring to see them sort of prancing around the beach while also talking about BFFs, even though it's the 1700s. Yeah, I I see what you're saying there. And I think for people perhaps who are unfamiliar with the fact that Australia was essentially just a jail by virtue of its isolation from the rest of the world, and they didn't need bars to keep these convicts in check, that that may not have been as clear as it could have been in the script there. So you don't have that context. And then, like you're saying, throwing in these additional elements, like the little bit of like fantasy or magical realism with him being swallowed by the shark, again, is just kind of like, I guess, sending people off in multiple different directions with their understanding of what's going on here, whereas it could be clearer from the start, and then you can start to uh, really have fun with it and dig into it. I felt there are those elements that could be emphasized up front to help sort of walk the reader through what is happening. You do already have those elements within even the opening dream itself to convey the different hats of that story. And I think it's already trying to do that. But from an outsider's perspective, I didn't find it currently successful initially. Right. And I think that that is essentially the game of this teaser is, you know, it's buttoned up with him saying something like, I guess jail isn't so bad or, you know, that kind of thing. It's it's our expectations about what it's like to be a prisoner and in jail, but then met with the reality of what it was like to be a prisoner in Australia in this weird kind of situation. So clarifying that at the start, you know, it's like with improv or whatever, or, you know, sketch, if we are doing a little game of a scene within this teaser, you have to be super clear at the start as to what's going on and who people are. And then you get to play off of the comedy of that. If there's confusion about what's going on or who people are, then the rest of it doesn't quite work. To that, there's also this element of finding the tonal balance within that teaser. If you are also upfront regarding what kind of script it is or what kind of humor you're bringing into, then it will also help. Again, this idea of 2018 slang in 18th century Australia is very unique. So if you can highlight that upfront, it's going to put you over the edge. I would also say there are little elements throughout the script that you could add to clarify that. So for example, you can add a transition between that abstract dream and reality. I write stating that Flynn was maybe daydreaming what we just saw or that the voiceover was his or some kind of way to bridge the gap between that shark moment and then him overlooking the beach instead of a hard cut without any transition delineated. 
So in terms of the dialogue and the jokes, there was a sequence there around page three where he's meeting Ella and Nobby and t- talking to them that felt a little too jokey for me. And what I mean by that is that it feels like the characters are talking for the sake of making quips rather than there being a purpose or a want or a goal to the scene. And I think that that's an easy trap to fall into with comedy writing, especially when you're introducing characters as everyone's firing off these zingers at each other. Meanwhile, the reader's sitting there going, well, wait, what's the, the kind of purpose of all this? And then we kind of transition into this discussion of the captain's daughter moving in with Ella. Now, it's interesting, but it kind of feels relatively unrelated to the teaser and this game of the teaser that we're playing with. It's not as coherent as, you know, setting up Flynn as the convict in the prison and staying within that. It almost feels like this whole thing with the captain's daughter and Ella should happen after the cold open, once we've established Flynn and his world. You know, it's fine to put your inciting incident in a cold open, but not when you're losing out on the potential of a fun, self-contained-ish cold open that sets up the world and the characters in the situation and buttons up with a joke. You know, there'll be plenty of time to get that story moving later, but right now it just feels like their whole conversation is largely this plot exposition kind of thing about what's to come and doesn't feel like as cohesive as a cold open as it could have been. Yeah, I definitely agree to some extent in the sense that, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of world building that you need to bring in that teaser initially. So even the world building by itself ingrained with the humor that you're bringing is enough to have a compelling teaser that exposes what the world is as well as who Flint is as a character. Yeah, I agree. And I think if you are going to use this element of the captain's daughter and Ella going on, instead of them standing around and talking about how something is about to happen, and presumably we're going to see it right after the cold open, why not just show it happening now? Have the captain's daughter already moving into Ella's house in the cold open so that we see this character and meet her rather than having two characters talking about another character who's off screen. You know, that way we get more visual comedy and an actual situation happening rather than discussion about a thing that we're just going to see in a minute anyway. Now, what about some more micro thoughts? Just a couple of little things. At one point, there was a description of Nobby and what he was wearing, and it says that his convict clobber is patched and mismatched. Now, that's a fun description. It's it's cool to like use voice in that way. However, clobber feels like a very Australian or maybe even British term as well for clothing. And it could potentially be confusing for a reader who doesn't know what that means or is more familiar with the, the meaning of that term for like beating something up. So when the goal with things like this, when the goal is to communicate information clearly, like a character introduction, I'd rather not put anything in the way that could stop that, especially if it's just for a stylistic reason. Do you know what clobber is, Alex? Have you heard that definition for clothing before? Yeah, it's clobbering time. <laughs> Yeah, it's similar little notes in the same vein as the English department teaser that we covered earlier that I'm not going to bring into here again because you covered a clubber. There's a little bit sort of slang that uh, passes through that is good for the dialogue, but in the prose itself uh, may lead to some confusion. My micro notes, again, come down to some uh, stylistic elements like the on page two, the there's a bunch of VO uh, elements that are missing as well as some spacing issues but that's uh, easily fixable to get that teaser under perhaps four pages because my OCD is kinking in when I see a little paragraph sliding over a fifth page (laughs) instead of a neat four-pager. And on that note, what makes us want to read on versus not? Well, I, I do think that it's a fun situation and concept I haven't seen. And, you know, just because of its personal connection to my nationality, I'd be interested to see what happens in this. But I do think it could have been much more effective in kind of setting up that that momentum that's going to propel us forward into the rest of the script. Again, like we said, we're introducing this new plot element that's going on there when we haven't really finished setting up the world and the characters quite enough. So it just felt a little bit torn between those two things rather than being a very focused 
um, you know, self-contained thing that is going to end on a button that's like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Right now, I don't know why it's interesting or important that the captain's daughter is moving into Ella's house. I don't really know that much about Ella. I don't know who the captain is or what kind of relationship the characters have with him. So just that in and of itself doesn't make me go, oh my God, I need to see what happens right now. Conceptually, this is a teaser that I actually really like on paper. I think this is something fresh. We haven't really seen that world before. The juxtaposition of the humor can also work. I just think that currently there's a lot more world building that needs to be established up front to really walk us through what those different uh, hurdles are to really make it worth it. Yeah, when you have such a unique concept, you want to make the most of that and display that and really dive into that. And like we were talking about, milk every possible thing for comedy. If you lean into that and uh, accomplish that extra task, then uh, it'll be an awesome teaser. Right. And in terms of page length, I think Alex was just talking about stuff going over the page. If you want to use five pages, six pages, whatever, like just spend your time in that world and make the most of it. All right. And our next script is called Migra by Christine M. Taurus. And this is a drama. The summary is, in a part of Arizona near the U.S.-Mexico border, we meet two Border Patrol agents named Jack and Danny, driving towards a ranch. Jack discusses his dream of owning a food truck, which Danny derides. Why would he give up his pension for a food truck? The pair start to investigate the ranch as they continue discussing this. The place is seemingly empty despite the two occupants expecting the agents. Danny calls Jack down to the barn's basement, where she's found the corpses of the couple who lived in the ranch, freshly murdered. Danny realizes they're not alone as she notices light spilling out from under a wall and a shadow passing through. The agents uncover a secret passage into a smuggler's tunnel with multiple doors. They find several corpses in different rooms of the tunnel and ultimately stumble upon a money room with duffel bags full of cash. As sirens approach the scene, Jack pressures Danny into taking several bags of money. And what do we think about this, Alex? Overall, I found it to be very effective. I actually really like the sort of minimalistic prose that expanded as we got deeper uh, into the scene and the environment and really showcased details when needed. The situation itself felt a bit familiar. It's kind of a cross between the tunnel and No Country for Old Men, but I thought it was competently written overall. Yeah, I really liked the description, like you said, how concise it was and kind of clean, and then at times when it needed to, focusing on that. And it was really good at setting up tension I and mean, building that in the kind of way that, you know, Silence of the Lambs does, or, you know, like a Sicario or something. And, you know, those kind of dark Western vibes I, th- I liked uh, in terms of the tone. In terms of the story itself, uh, some of the actions down the line uh, was a little bit puzzling to me, specifically once they go into the tunnel. So seemingly they know that the murderer is around the corner since they saw his or her shadow move in the tunnel, which leads them to walk into it. But then they act as if they're alone, slamming doors, talking about the cash, all while still presumably under the threat of a murderer looming around. Now, I'm brought back to the end of Silence of the Lambs. You just mentioned it, Nick. The killer is on the loose in the house, so why would they be having a discussion about money when potentially their very lives are at stake? Uh, That was a little bit of an element that I get it narratively, while uh, you know it's a great way to end. I'm just thinking if they're going to have this debate, then you really need to emphasize the fact that they need to be hush about it and really milk that tension that there's a guy out there that could be killing them. Right, yeah. On my reading of it, I didn't pick up that shadow thing so much as a sign the murderer was right there, but I think logically in that situation, you have to assume that given there's all these dead bodies around, there could be someone there waiting to kill you. And I think that that would be a more effective scene anyway if they're they're hushed, they're not sure, if there's someone around the corner, they're trying to make this, this decision, and that would provide more motivation for what they do at the end, which I want to get into right now. The decision to grab the money there from Jack, to me, didn't feel super motivated 
and it was then it kind of came out as very quickly justified after the fact in the writing. I would have rather that be set up earlier. You know, so he basically says <laughs> as they're grabbing it, like, oh, it turns out my wife's pregnant and also your your father could use the money for his medical bills. That none of that was brought up or discussed before. And it's fine to reveal the pregnancy thing at that point, but here's what I would have wanted to see happen earlier in this car ride, rather than a bunch of discussion about a food truck, I would want to see that he's in money trouble with his family or something like that, rather than him having enough disposable cash to think about investing in a food truck. It just comes out as a, a weird excuse or justification rather than using that that real estate earlier to set up this moment and build this decision. I get the the idea of sending in some uh, BS small talk initially about the food truck. Uh, that said, I also concur that you have the, the real estate already uh, and the dynamic between the characters and the conversation in the car and when they're uh, canvassing the, the ranch to set up those elements up front. You don't need to go as overt as stating what you're stating later as much as milking the elements you already have. For example, the food truck, I think is a symptom of those money problems. I think Danny also mentions the fact that he can't afford that based on their pension. So the elements are already there. I think maybe just emphasizing that a little bit more in the in the dialogue. Would yeah, be I, I agree. You don't need to be over, you know, hitting it over the head with it. But I just don't feel right now like he needs this money. And I want to be sympathetic to him almost for taking it, but also conflicted. They're both also officers of the law. And he seems to very quickly make this decision to take this illegal money and get himself in all the ramifications that would happen. Whereas I just didn't understand why that needed to happen in this moment. Absolutely. And I think you can always uh, seed in a little sort of character quirk. Maybe he's a kleptomaniac or maybe like he steals something from the crime scene or whatever little element to see the fact that, oh, maybe he's not that clear cut guy. Right. Maybe is he like a slightly dirty cop or something? I don't know. Whatever it happens to be, I just wanted a, a better reason why this decision to take the money uh, occurs there. Another thing I would have loved to know earlier was more about who Lynette and Rick are, this couple who are on the ranch before we show up. Again, we have all this real estate of this time spent discussing food trucks and that kind of thing. So are these people old family friends? Are they relatives? Why are these Border Patrol agents visiting them and having a meal with them? You know, setting up that there are these innocuous, lovely old folks will actually, you know, doing that more will help this reveal and the surprise that, oh my God, they're people smugglers. The only thing that we really gives us that right now is just these nice family photos of them. You can either do it after or before it, whatever the, the case may be. But I definitely concur that there's this element of sort of emotional connection to the murder victims. And even on a intellectual slash narrative level or plot level, why are they visiting these people? Why are they there in the first place? We don't really get that at all. Yeah, it doesn't need to be a big thing, but just a basic like just checking up on them because they're old and you never know what might happen or like they invited us over for breakfast or, you know, just things like that. And I did have one note about character description. I think uh, they're fine as is, but a bit too simplistic. So, for example, Jack and Danny are described as both are strong capable border patrol agents. Now, strong, capable sounds like how parents would describe their kid, not how a character's state is conveyed, at least for me. Uh, so I thought these abstract descriptors don't really mean much. Uh, for example, Danny is also described as a modern woman. Uh, what is a modern woman, Nick? I don't know. But yeah, you're right. Pretty much every protagonist in a TV show is going to be strong and capable unless it's a comedy. And the issue I had with that too was just painting them both with the exact same brush. Like I would rather set up the differences between these two characters so that we understand the conflict that's going to come between them rather than just saying they're both that. And I had an even smaller, more pedantic note about that, that it just said both are border patrol agents. 
but I don't know how we know or see that. I'd, I would rather you say they wear Border Patrol uniforms or caps or something like that because we need to see that visually on the screen. And just to go back quickly on the modern woman thing, I think the idea is to contrast Danny to Jack because Jack is a gentleman cowboy and I guess she's wearing like a pantsuit or something, mm-hmm. but none of that is indicated in the way they behave or the way they interact. So the only place you have to add that in on top of what you already have is in the character description. So I think that's a place where you can sort of seize that opportunity and lean into the contrast between Jack and Danny. Right. I mean, think about what makes True Detective so interesting. It is the vast difference between these two police who are paired up together to bring down this serial killer and their beliefs and their outlook on the world and their backgrounds and all that kind of thing. I think that that's what makes it compelling for us. So it seems like a missed opportunity to not do more with uh, the dynamic between the two of them, especially when we're going to reach a situation and a decision that's going to put them in conflict with each other. I'd recommend checking out the TV show, The bridge that was on FX for a couple of seasons with Dan Kruger and Demon Bashir that deals into almost a very similar dynamic. It takes place in the border between the US and Mexico, and it has this odd pairing between these two. I think they were two detectives or two cops that had to work a murder case together. All right. Do you have any uh, micro kind of page notes on this script? Yeah, so going back to the pros of it all, some of the imagery used, depending on the context, may be a bit... Uh, over the top. So for example, when they're surveilling the scene with guns under tension, the pro says Danny shoots out her arm, stopping him. Uh, They're again in a tense murder scene with guns. Shooting out anything could be problematic. Uh, I just think that there's ways of phrasing it in a way that you could point out the same elements without being sort of too figurative. You know, you could just say Danny stops him. She points to the wall by the stairs. I think it conveys the same uh, message, if not even better, because it's concise, it's powerful, it's to the point. Right. If anything, someone could misread that as shooting a gun and, and then have to stop and go back and read it again and be like, oh, wait, no, sorry, this, no, that didn't happen. Right. That, that kind was of where, thing. Yeah. Uh, overall, I, I did feel that you know it was pretty solid on the page for me. There was one moment that tripped me up. And it was this on page two, uh, Danny goes to the side of the porch and surveys the landscape. She says, you know, they're talking about, you know, this family not being home. She's like trucks in the porch. She peers through the windows and says, buy it when you retire. They were just talking about a food truck. And now I, I guess after parsing it for a few minutes, I was like, oh, she's talking about their car is in the carport. So they are home. And then she goes back to this conversation about buy the food truck when you retire. But she literally just said the trucks in the port buy it when you retire. She, it sounds like she's telling him to buy their truck when he retires. And I know that's like a silly pedantic thing, but just jumping between these conversations and then using the same noun <laughs> for both the food truck and saying that they're home. It's one of those things where it's kind of cleverish dialogue where it's like short and brief and it's like, here's, you know, what's going on. But for me, that's just led to a bunch of confusion. And I had to stop and think several times about what she was trying to say. Yeah, it's the classic thing of like adding more questions than needed or asking the kinds of questions that we don't want to be asking. Yeah, unless they literally had a food truck in their carport, which they could have, but that wasn't described. So. Hey, who doesn't in Arizona? All right, moving on. What makes us want to read on versus not? Well, I'm definitely curious about this whole situation that this lovely old couple were people smugglers or involved in the you know cartels or something like that. So I want to know what's going to happen there. I guess the whole thing of them taking the money and what's going to happen next with the sirens coming is, is interesting. But again, I think that I would have been more compelled to read on if I'd really understood the motivations for taking the money and understanding the need and the reason behind this. I'd be like, oh my God, how's this going to work out? In the same way that, you know, Breaking Bad, he's doing this illegal thing to make money for his family because he has cancer and wants to provide for them. Right now, it just feels like uh, Jack's doing this kind of selfish thing. He's like, sweet, get some free money. 
the crux of that idea is either you want to set him up as being corrupted and then leaning into that fact or subverting expectations and uh, making him a good cop that actually steals the money at the end. It's kind of like the way the S.H.I.E.L.D. set up their division as seemingly good cops that well, at least do dirty things to accomplish good goals. But by the end of the pilot, they kill, you know, one of the good guys of the show uh, to really show that they're corrupted cops willing to do anything to save themselves. So I think there's ways of conveying that in terms of the characters. Now, uh, story-wise, I mean, I really like the world. I like the ambiance. You know, as we brought up the tension, I thought was very effective as well. But again, it's all about setting up the conflict between the characters and what is going to entail from them stealing the money as opposed to what they were doing before doing that. Right. Like I could even see Jack and Danny clashing a lot more and having, again, more of a tense moment between them as the sirens are getting closer and us having some doubt in our mind as to is she going to stop and turn him in or something like that, I think would help set up that conflict further. Yeah. And you can just cut to black on them after that conflict, wondering what are they going to do as the sirens get closer. And then maybe later in the episode, you reveal maybe Jack didn't steal the bags. Danny did. And that's a twist. You're like, holy crap. There's a lot of opportunities there. Maybe she convinced him off it and then stole it herself. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of things that you could take advantage of in that situation. Play the game. All right, let's crown the two September 2018 winners of Paper Tees. And as always, all the teasers we read on air are in contention for a soon-to-be-famed paper team mentorship program, which we will be announcing information on later on. Yeah, we're going to take one of these paper teases and make them our mentee, and we'll, we'll guide them through on air, you know, helping them develop a concept from scratch, from, you know, brainstorming all the way through to a finished script and maybe even pitching. So that's pretty awesome, I like to think. And like last month, the top two teasers, uh, the winners of September, will each be awarded a free month of Roadmap Riders Premium Riders Network, a $69 value. Nice. That's another awesome prize you can win by submitting your scripts. The Roadmap Writers Premium Network is a month-long program that will grant the writer one open pitch session, which they can choose from dozens of execs to pitch their project to, a live online elevator pitch to three execs in a roundtable setting, there's four educational webinars, one private logline review with Roadmap's Director of Writer Outreach, one group pitch prep webinar with literary manager Chris Decker, a fictional entity, and one interactive webinar with Roadmap's Creative Director on a behind-the-scenes look at the industry. So that's a lot of value for submitting your script for free. All right, let's get down to it. Who is our first winner for the month of September? The first winner is Student Visa by Paul Chang. Well done, Paul. Congrats. And our second winner is Migra by Christine Torres. Nice. Very nice. Awesome scripts all around. Thank you for submitting. And before we go, on that note, our Paper Tease competition is still open for submission. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air, win prizes, and be eligible for the Paper Team mentorship. Nice. So uh, thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes and the teasers for this episode at paperteam.co slash 106. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews will help uh, get us more attention, build our community, and attract new cool listeners like you. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Roadmap Writers, who in just two years have helped more than 50 writers find representation. So visit RoadmapWriters.com to see their full slate of educational programs. And Paper Team listeners can use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off their first program. 
And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes or questions, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Well, next week, we're going to be having a chat to an entertainment lawyer and asking him all sorts of questions about the industry, contracts, credits, you name it. So we're going to be having um, Panos Spanos on to discuss that with us. Suit up. Catch you then. <laughs>